Well, friends and families, we continue through this hour of worship, a great reminder that we have opportunities when we do gather to remember who we are and what we're all about. In fact, as you've heard me perhaps say many times before, the word remember is found so frequently in Scripture. It outnumbers the word believe five times to one. It outnumbers the word trust two to one. In fact, it seems like in all 66 books of the Bible, God's people are constantly forgetting who they are and the life that they are called into. And as we forget, we become fragmented. We begin to get separated. We begin to co-opt the stories of the dominant culture and just forget who we are in this life that God has designed and died for us to live. And so this moment, as we go to God's word, it's an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to remind us just who we are and what we're all about as a church. Perhaps you've heard us say many times, or you're hearing for the first time today, that we long to be a church that follows Jesus every day and everywhere with everyone. This is a way of life. This isn't something that is crammed into just an hour, isn't just when we gather alongside fellow believers, and isn't just designed to be privatized and turned off when we go into our world, into our places of influence, into our workplaces, but rather this way of life of following Jesus means that we can grow in being the church at work. That's our vision, to be a church at work. And so today, as we go to God's word, I want to take a look at what does it mean for us to be a church? And second, what is this work that we are called to? Each of these two main ideas has three subpoints. So first, what is the church? It's a reminder that scripture never says the church is an hour on Sunday. It's not a building, it's not an address. But the best definition that I've seen given as I look at scripture is that church is simply a community of people defined by the reality of who Jesus is. In fact, throughout the New Testament, this word church, the Greek word is ekklesia, the language of the New Testament, the Koine Greek, gives this image of church being the called out ones. And there are many metaphors throughout the New Testament that describe just simply and significantly what the church is. And every single metaphor that is used, according to Jesus, according to Paul, according to other New Testament writers, actually have metaphors that describe who we are in relation to who Jesus is. In fact, you can't find a metaphor in the New Testament that describes the church without it also describing who Jesus is. And so three of the many metaphors that are used in the New Testament I want to touch on right now that help remind us just simply what the church is. We can forget what the church is according to God's heart and God's word. We can forget that it's people defined by the reality of who Jesus is, and we can begin to distort and, and forget and really see church as something that we can either be late to or forget about or can only be when we gather together in person. The first of these three metaphors I want to share with you is that Scripture says, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that the church is the body of Christ. And this image of the body of Christ clearly gives an image that Jesus is the head and we are members of the body. And it's this great reminder that no church is a tr church, is a New Testament, is a gospel believing, is a Christ-centered church unless Jesus is the head. And so though you might see me on the screen or other pastors on the screen or other worship leaders on the screen, or when we gather together in this physical place, you might see leaders up front. You might go to our website and see our staff. You might discover who our elders are or our deacons are. The truth is, is that I, nor the pastors, nor the elders, nor the staff, nor the deacons, nor the lay leaders are the head of this church. The head of this church is Jesus. And when you think about the, the significance, the centrality of a head to a body, the head does many things. The head contains the brain that gives direction to all the members of the body that actually, and we can go deep, but we don't have the time. This is like a, a sermon for another day. But when you understand the, the depth of the remarkable miracle of the human brain, 
in its ability to not only communicate to all the different parts of the body, either consciously or subconsciously, its ability to control the systems of the body, the cardiovascular system, the nervous system, the, uh, you know, the, the, the systems of our body that make up the dynamic reality of who we are. It also receives communication from the body as well. And there's this great reminder that we are the church when we allow Jesus to be the Lord of our life, to be the one that gives us direction, that we are in communication with, but also that we are in sync with and in alignment with one another as members of the body. Now, I know many of you, perhaps all of us have experienced at some point in our life uh, an injury. And something happens when we are injured, even the smallest thing, uh, a broken pinky, a stubbed toe, a, a sore back, it can actually begin to affect the movement of the whole. I don't know if you know this, but for many years, all throughout high school, I had really severe back problems. It really affected uh, the sports that I played. I, 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 from the moment I woke up to the moment I went to bed, I had this back pain, and I lived with it for years, went to different doctors and chiropractors and uh, you know, physical uh, masseuses, all these different things trying to solve the problem of the pain of my lower back. And yet, after a while, I just lived through it and really just managed the pain. Well, it was many years later, in my 20s, that I actually injured my knee. And I had now back problems, I had now knee problems, and I was just trying to manage this. And I happened to be with a friend who was the owner of a gym, a follower of Christ, and, and uh, I knew him very well. We were part of the same Bible study. And he saw me kind of moving, you know, like the tin man. I, I wasn't limber at all. And he said, what's going on? I, I told him my back issues and my knee issues. And he said, oh, you've got to go to the crazy Russian. What? The crazy Russian? What are you talking about? He says, oh, yeah, you've got to go to Mark Kurgamov. He's the guy that works for me. He is a neuroreflexologist, and he's going to pinpoint the source of why you're experiencing all this pain. And I thought, what is this? So I was desperate at this point. I've lived with back pain at that point for nearly 10 years. Now this new knee pain. Uh, I, I was desperate. So I went to, as my friend referred to him, as the crazy Russian. Well, this crazy Russian was brilliant. And in the course of the hour, he began to take me through some movements and some exercises. He asked me to, to bend down and touch my toes. And he says, oh, that's interesting. I said, what's interesting? And he says, well, I want you to bend down and touch your toes, and I want you to go straight down and straight back up. Don't twist. Don't go to the side. I want you to go straight down. So I did it. I went and bent down. I went back up. He says, okay, now I want you to do it again, and I want you to go straight down. Don't twist. And I said, that's what I just did. He says, oh, you did, did you? Okay, well, watch this. And so he pulls out his camera and the phone. And he says, I want you to bend over and come back up, but you've got to be straight. You can't twist. You can't go to the side. Go down and come back up. So I did it, came back up, and he says, I want you to watch this video. I watched the video, and what I saw on screen was very different than the movement that I imagined in my mind. I thought I was going right down and back up, but in actual fact, in the video, I, I twisted and hitched and came down. There was a disconnect with how I perceived my body and what was actually happening. I wasn't in alignment. I wasn't moving the way that my mind thought I was. I didn't have control over my body. It was out of sync. It was out of whack. He did some other exercises. And after maybe about half the time, he said, I want you to tell me about the time when you injured your ankle and you didn't rehab it correctly. And I said, what? I said, my ankle's fine. He says, no, 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 tell me about the time you injured your ankle. And I'm like, I, I haven't injured my ankle. And he says, no, at some point in your life, you injured your ankle. You need to think back. You need to remember because that's the source of all the problems in your body. And I'm like, no, my back hurts. My knee hurts. Oh, wait a second. Oh, that's right. In junior high, I was playing soccer. I injured my right ankle. I went to my coach and said, what should I do? And he gave me a brace. And I tied that brace, made out of like vinyl and leather, and I wore that brace over my socks, under my shoes for the next nine months. That's right, I forgot about that. And he says, ah, oh, that's interesting. 
rather than rehabbing your ankle correctly, you simply put a brace around it to cause your ankle to rely on that external structure. And so in doing so, it didn't heal properly. And during that nine-month period, you lost the flexibility in your ankles. Take a look. And I'm sitting down at this point with my legs out on the, you know, the doctor's table. He says, I want you to rotate your ankles you know, in, a, in a circular motion. And my left ankle is like full motion. And my right ankle is just like barely moving. He says, okay, I want you to point your toes down. My left ankle fully extended. I, I, I couldn't go as far. Long story short, I had lost mobility in my right ankle. And he said, because of that, I began to walk with a different gait. I didn't have the flexibility. And in doing so, I walked with an ever so slight limp that I actually compensated with by shifting my hips. He says, in doing that, it actually threw off the alignment of your back. And that's why you've had back problems all throughout high school. And the middle point between your ankle that lacks mobility and your suede hips is your knee. And finally, that middle point begin to get strained. And the answer is we need to not deal with your back, not deal with your knee, but get mobility back to your ankle. I didn't have the ability within myself to even perceive that I was out of alignment, let alone what I could do to get rid of this pain. It required somebody outside of me with a greater knowledge to pinpoint how my body had gotten out of alignment. In the same way, spiritually, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Scripture says you are now a new creation. You're adopted into God's family. You are now part of the body of Christ. And you are meant not to live in isolation. You're not meant to just follow Jesus alone. You are meant to be interconnected into a local body of Christ, a body of believers where you can be part of a whole. And if you follow Jesus alone and you don't have an opportunity to be in community, to be connected to other members of the body of Christ, after a while you begin to atrophy. You begin to lose mobility. You actually miss out on how God longs for you to be, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, part of a body that is there to build up the whole. You're called to play a part in this community. One of the remarkable things about our church family is that we have thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people who join us every single Sunday that are just like you, that perhaps live in Los Angeles or perhaps live outside Los Angeles, outside the state of California, perhaps outside the United States. In fact, last year, we had people from 191 different countries engage with the ministry of Bel Air Church. And if you call Bel Air Church your home, we want to help you get connected into community. Most of all, for you to experience Jesus as the head or the Lord of your life, who gives you direction, who gives you guidance, who brings you into alignment to to move and be part of what God is doing in the world, but also to see that you are an indispensable part of the whole, as the Apostle Paul says. You know, if anything is out of alignment, it affects the whole. And the truth is, is that no one part of the body is more important than the other, according to Scripture. I'm not more important than you. People who have been part of this church for 66 years are not more important than people who have been here for 16 minutes. We've all been called to be part of a body. And as we remember that we are the church, the church is more than an hour on Sunday, more than a physical location. We are the body of Christ. These realities that Jesus is our head, but we are connected to be members of one body shapes how we view what it means to be part of the church. So my invitation to you is reach out, make yourself known, follow up after the service, go to belair.org forward slash connect call our church offices, go to our website. We want to know who you are and get you connected in the life of this church. The second metaphor that's used to describe the church that I want to touch on is that the church is the building of God. Now it's tempting to see, uh, you know, a physical building and think and call that church. And that's true in a sense that I'm in the sanctuary of Bel Air Church, and yet Bel Air Church is more than a physical building of stone, of wood, of tile, of roofing, of substructure, of glass, of organ, of screen. It's so much more than that. It is the building of God. 
And what's remarkable about the building of God, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, is that this building or this household is actually made up of both Jew and Gentile. Ultimately, this is God's people, but also people who weren't born ethnically Jewish, but have put their faith and trust in Jesus as the Messiah, who are now grafted and who are part of the family of God. It becomes this multicultural reality, this reality that transcends tribe, tongue, or nation, that this household of God is is open and inviting all who would put their faith and trust in Jesus. And this household is defined by the reality of who Jesus is because Jesus is described as a cornerstone. A cornerstone is so significant in architecture because it is the first stone laid of which every stone is aligned to and measured up against. The reality is, it says elsewhere in 1 Peter that we are living stones and we make up the temple of God. It it, it sticks with this imagery and Jesus is the cornerstone, the capstone. We, in many ways, like a body, move together in a dynamic, in a thriving way when we realize that we aren't individual parts, but we are connected with Jesus as the head. In the same way, the building of God is not about scattered stones. And these scattered stones are called to gather together, to be connected together, lined up to Jesus as the great cornerstone, the great capstone. So in the same way, would you see yourself as a living stone if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus? And you were part of a household that houses the Holy Spirit, a place where Jesus wants to dwell. As you've heard me say before, that we want to be a church family where Jesus has free reign, where Jesus feels right at home that the values of this household, the values of this building, the values of this temple express the heart of God. The third metaphor that I want to touch on uh, is that we are the branches of God. You know, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And it's this great reminder that we are rooted in one vine, and that's Jesus. You could say it this way, that also throughout the Old Testament, uh, the image of God's people is frequently a tree. And this image of a tree, you can think of Isaiah, where there's a reference to God's people being oaks of righteousness, a planting on display for the Lord's splendor, that in some ways that we are united as branches because we are connected to the vine, the trunk, the central reality of Jesus. And if I was to think about Bel Air as a tree, uh, it looks different than a lot of other churches, and that's okay. And yet, some people have heard me say this before, uh, a tree is a tree is a tree, though there's different types of trees in the world. There's bonsai trees, and there's sycamore trees, and there's oak trees. And yet, this, this phone is not a tree. By definition, you can't say that this is a tree. It's a, it's, it's a phone. Well, what makes a tree a tree? Well, a botanist and arborist would tell us uh, very specific answers, but you can tell when you see a tree. There's a mixture of roots, of trunk, of branches, and then sometimes leaves. Some of those are deciduous, some of those are evergreen, there's a lot of different varieties. And I love in God's creation and in the breath of God's creativity, in God's world where God spoke all things into existence, that you look around the globe and there's such a beautiful diversity of trees. In the same way, I believe that when we look out around the globe and look out throughout uh, history of the church, that the church looks and takes different shapes and forms but are still defined as the church. You see, the church, again, I'm going to go back to it, is a community of people defined by the reality of who Jesus is. Some churches are small, like a bonsai tree. Some churches are massive, like a sycamore tree. Some churches are part of a network. Some churches are part of a denomination. Some churches are urban. Some churches are suburban. Some churches gather in homes. Some churches gather in cathedrals. 
Uh, some churches are state-sponsored. Some churches exist in countries where it is legal to be a follower of Jesus. And it's very tempting for a sycamore tree to look at a bonsai tree and say, you're not a tree. When in actual fact, if we are rooted in Christ, if we're defined by the reality of who Jesus is, if Jesus is our vine, if we are rooted in him, then by definition, we are part of the church. But also, it's this great reminder that we can celebrate and encourage the great diversity of churches around the globe. But in the same way that this isn't a tree, not every church that calls itself a church is a church. Because if a church is defined by the reality of, let's say, religiosity, if a church is defined by rules of do's and don'ts, it begins to move away from the biblical vision of being a church defined by the reality of who Jesus is, who doesn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. If the church is defined by the reality of the senior pastor, it can begin to lose its focus from Jesus being the head, Jesus being the cornerstone, Jesus being the vine, and it can begin to move away from God's heart for and vision for being the church whether it's the body or the building or the branches. We are the church when Jesus is the center point, who is the image of the invisible God, who makes God's self known, who says about himself that all of scripture points to him. And so I wanna invite you to see yourself, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, as the church. It's not that church is just a place that you go to and leave, but we are the church as followers of Jesus. And maybe some of you, I imagine many of you are watching today and you haven't yet put your faith and trust in Jesus. Well, you can be the church right here, right now. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is both Lord and Savior of your life, you don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to kick that addiction. You don't have to memorize uh, the books of the Bible in order. You don't have to begin to give money to the church ministry. You don't have to do anything other than believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, as Paul says in Romans 10, 9, and 10, that he is both your Lord and Savior of your life. This remarkable truth that you don't have to go through a membership class. You don't have to, you know, reach a level of moral purity to be the church or to be part of God's body or his building, or his branches. But right here, right now, you can put your faith and trust in him. And though I can't see you, God does. And scripture says that no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws them to himself. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus, it is a work of God in your life to even give you that gift of faith. And if you say yes now to Jesus, or if you have already but aren't yet connected, make yourself known. We want you to experience being part of this body of Christ, this building of God, branches that are connected to Jesus. So this great reminder that we are the church at work. This is the second reality, the second truth. You see, the work that we do in the world matters. Every single human being on the planet uh, does some form of work. Some of us, we get paid for it. Some of us, uh, we are passionate about it. Uh, some of us, the work that we do isn't for pay. For some of us, the work that we do uh, feels like a grind. In fact, when you look at the scope of humanity, there are so many different types of work. And what's so remarkable, if you look all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, long before the fall, work was holy. And work was the first thing that God called humanity to do. And it was without toil. It was without hardship. It was without labor laws. It was without lawsuits. It was without promotions, without demotions, without firing. In fact, in the very beginning, we can see in Genesis chapter 2, God put humanity in a garden. And the first command was to care for and cultivate the earth. Humanity in the beginning partnered with God in work that was for the flourishing others and for the glory of God. And it wasn't until humanity chose their way rather than God's way, they forgot God's call on their life. They were seduced by the temptation of the serpent. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
And from that moment, there was a fracture of shalom. Shalom is more than just a greeting. It's more than just a hello. In the Hebrew language, it it means a a holistic peace. It is physical well-being. It is spiritual well-being. It is economic well-being. It is relational well-being. In that fracture at the fall, when we chose our way rather than God's way, our relationship with God, with each other, with ourselves, with all of creation was fractured. And in addition to that, we lost a vision for work that glorifies God and is for the flourishing of others. And after that, work began to be toil. And most frequently, work began to be about ourselves, building up ourselves, and for the flourishing of ourselves. And you can trace economic models all the way since the fall. And as you do so, you can also see the biblical narrative of God constantly telling God's people how you work in the world matters. The prophet Isaiah even said on behalf of God, you fast and you pray and you worship, and yet through the week, you oppress your workers. Therefore, I don't delight, God says, in your worship. I don't delight in your fasting. I don't delight in your prayers because throughout the week, you are not worshiping me in your work. There is a vision that God has for the work that we are called to do in the world. And broadly speaking, kind of like those three metaphors for the church, there are three categories of work that you might say begin to orient us towards the type of work that God calls us to do as God's people. And they have to do with the great commandment, the great commission, and the great ministry. That third one you probably haven't heard much of. That's my language for it, but we'll get to that in a moment. Well, what's the great commandment? There's this great moment. It's found in Matthew 22. If you have your Bibles, we'd love for you to go there. This is Matthew 22, verse 34. It says this, When the Pharisees heard that he, this is Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. You see, some people ask questions of Jesus because they're curious. Other people ask questions of Jesus, not because they're curious, but because they're critical of Jesus and want to know, can he measure up? They're not really wanting him to teach them. They are the teacher and want to know if he passes the test. This is one of those cases. And the lawyer says, teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And Jesus responds, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is originally found in the book of Deuteronomy, in the Shema, which is a centerpiece to the Jewish faith. Even many of my friends who are uh, Jewish uh, believers today, they, they look back to the Shema as a central defining point. The hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Talk about this with your children. Bind it on your foreheads. Write it on your doorways. Do not forget. Do not forget. Do not forget. This is the life that you are called to in Jesus. As a rabbinical teacher says to the lawyer, the greatest commandment, the greatest work that you can ever do is live a life of love to your God with all of your soul, with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. The beginning of work that is holy, that glorifies God, that actually lasts into eternity is work that you do, not for yourself, not just for a boss, not just for a paycheck, not just for your reputation, not just to build your resume, not just to build your reel, not just to build your portfolio, but work that you do for your God. If you see God as your employer, your boss, the one who calls you to that thing, it will change the work that you do. You see, there was this reality in the middle of the, the Reformation where Martin Luther, John Calvin, many others began to see that the church had lost this vision for work. And people wrongly believed that the only work that was holy was the work that priests were doing, that bishops were doing, that deacons were doing. But in actual fact, Martin Luther remembered God's vision for work and said, actually, If you connect your work as a farmer, as a baker, as a parent, as a soldier, as a civil servant, 
as a leader, if you connect your work to God's work, it is as holy as the work that a priest does, that a bishop does. In fact, all of work, if we connect it to God's work, if we see God as our boss, becomes holy work, eternal work, God-glorifying work. When you love your Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so I want you to consider the work that you do in the world. And that work, whether it's raising up the next generation, whether it's volunteering your time, whether it's cleaning your kitchen, whether it's organizing your garage, whether it's mowing the lawn, that actually every single thing you do, even before you get perhaps to the workplace, whether it's on Zoom, whether it's in an office, uh, whether you're part of a team, whether you work remotely, whether you're a consultant, whether you're a day uh, player, whatever it might be, if you connect that work to God's work, if you see that this is the thing that God has called you to, that actually there is a way in your script writing, in your policy making, in your teaching, in your surgeries, to actually worship God through it. A remarkable transformation in your heart and your perspective can take place when you connect your work to God's work. But God says that through Jesus, this isn't the only commandment. He continues on. He says this, this is the greatest and first commandment, referring to love your Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then Jesus continues. And he says, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus is saying there is a way to view the work that you do in the world, not just as glorifying God, but for the flourishing of other people. I have some connections as part of the Global Kingdom Partnership Network, of which I'm a member of. You've heard me perhaps talk about this before. It is a global network of senior pastors and leading Christian marketplace leaders around the globe. And there is a group of people out of Geneva, Switzerland, followers of Christ, who have actually taken a biblical look at an economic model that they've been working on for decades. And they believe that that economic model uh, expresses in very tangible and practical ways this vision that God has, not only to worship God in our work, but for the flourishing of all people. And they call it a variety of things. They call it economics of mutuality. They call it capitalism 2.0. There's a great book that's been reading, uh, written called Completing Capitalism. And it takes uh, a step beyond the definition of capitalism as uh, maximizing profits for shareholders to a grander vision of maximizing good and profitability for all stakeholders, other people in the industry, for humanity, for creation. And this economic model has actually been adopted by a thousand universities around the globe including in China, including in all the Ivy League schools. And the entire economic model is based off of biblical principles found in the Hebrew scriptures, most notably the concept of jubilee. And that's a sermon for another day, but I want you to catch this vision that there is actually a way in which you can work in the world and not have it be just about the bottom line, not just about it being ultimately becoming a monopoly at the top of the heap but there is a way. And it's different than what the world says. It's different than what many economic models say, but there's a way to work in the world to glorify God and for the flourishing of other people. So the great commandment is the work that we're called to do, and it's two-pronged. It's to love God and it's to love our neighbor as ourself. But there's also the great commission, the second reality that Jesus invites us to join God at work in. And you can find this actually uh, in the gospel, according to Matthew, at the very, very end, in verse 16, it says this. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had uh, directed them. When they saw him, they were, worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
Now, this great commission isn't just for the apostles, isn't just for pastors, isn't just for deacons and elders. This commission is for every single follower of Jesus. And sadly, in our modern culture, we've outsourced the great submission to the professionals. Perhaps you've outsourced it to me. Perhaps you think that it's my job to disciple. It's my job to baptize. It's my job to teach. And yes, that's true, but it's also true for you. And as a church, we want to equip you to follow Jesus. We want to equip you not only to be a disciple of Jesus, but to be a disciple maker for Jesus. We want to equip you to, to teach. The scripture says, always give a reason for the hope that is in you. And so if you want to be part of this church, if you consider yourself part of Bel Air Church, and we long collectively to be the church at work, the church is not just the staff, it's not just the clergy, but it's all of us who consider Bel Air our church home. And the work that we are called to is we are all called to be disciples and disciple makers. We are all called to teach. We can't outsource this to anybody else. And this is a huge invitation. And perhaps you might feel unqualified. Perhaps you might feel out of your league. Perhaps you might feel uh, unworthy. Well, let me tell you this. What Jesus said to them, he also says to you, fear not, for I am with you to the very ends of the age. If God has called you, then he'll equip you. It was a tremendous calling for me to receive the role of senior pastor. And I actually said to some of my close friends, I'm not qualified. Uh, I, I, I can't do it. I've only been a youth pastor and a pastor of discipleship. I, I can't wrap my mind around being a senior pastor. And this great friend of mine said, it doesn't matter. You can never be qualified, but God will qualify you if he calls you to that role. And so I've been called to this role and you've been called to follow Jesus. And if you say yes, to a life of being a disciple maker, a teacher, God will equip you. We want to be part of that journey. The third and final thing under this work that God has called us to uh, is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll call it the great ministry. And I love this language. And often we talk about the great commandment and the great commission. And we never get to this, uh, this wonderful passage of scripture in 2 Corinthians. I know Popularly, it's not known as the great ministry, and I love referring to it that way. But listen to this. This is uh, this wonderful, wonderful reminder of the work that we are called to do in the world. Beginning in verse 16 of 2 Corinthians 5, it says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old is past. And there is a new creation. Everything, in fact, has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us a ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we, all of us, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Apostle Paul is reminding the church, every single believer, not just the clergy, not just the elders, not just the professionals, not just those who are ordained, but every single person who is a follower of Jesus, that you have a ministry. You are a minister. And this great ministry is called the ministry of reconciliation. As John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that in him people wouldn't perish but would have everlasting life. The book of Romans says that all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, but God demonstrates God's love in this, that while we were all still sinners, Christ died for us. So when you catch a vision for how God sees you as forgiven, as beloved, as righteous because you have received Christ's righteousness and Christ has taken away your sin, you begin to view yourself differently through God's eyes. But now, as it says in verse 16, you 
view every single person on the planet through a different lens. This is so key in our culture that is so apt to stereotype, that is so powerful in telling people to see the world as an us versus them. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus, there is a work that you are called to do, and it is ministry, where you see every single person is someone who Christ died for. And because God no longer counts their sins against them and longs for them to experience that forgiven reality, longs for them to put their faith and trust in Jesus, to, to receive Christ's righteousness and have their sin removed, God longs for them to be adopted into God's family. We move out into the world and we don't count people's sins against them because God doesn't. We don't go out in the world judging people because God doesn't. We go out in the world as ambassadors for Christ with a message of hope, of reconciliation, of forgiveness. Now, this is not a message of, you know, just live however you want. God loves you no matter what. No, this is a ministry that says, no matter what you have done, it's not bigger than God's sacrificial love for you. That you can actually experience reconciliation with God right here, right now, a gift of grace. You can receive Jesus by faith. And when we as a church join in God's work of reconciliation, that is very different than a work of religiosity. You see, the Pharisees, they did a lot of work. And the work that they did in the first century that Jesus continually was critical of was telling people you are either in or out based upon your behavior. And that religiosity was all about behavior modification. That you would be part of God's beloved people, that you would be part of God's chosen people if and only if you obeyed the law. And Jesus says, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. No human being can live up to the law except for me, Jesus says. And when you put your faith and trust in me, as it ended here in that section I just read, he who knew no sin, Jesus lived the most beautiful life of all. He became sin for us. He took upon himself the wrath of God on the cross as a result of our sin imputed to him. And he gives us his righteousness if we receive him by faith. Therefore, we move out in the world as forgiven people, with the ministry of reconciliation. And this work that we're called to do isn't just when we gather together in person, whether that's in the sanctuary, in homes and workplaces together for Bible studies, but it's also the work that we're called to do as we go out into the world. This is work that you can do in line at the grocery store, driving on the freeway, work that you can do on vacation, work that you can do on social media, work that you can do on conference calls. This is work that transcends space, and time. And as we go on this journey, what a great reminder that as we become the church at work, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us and to grow us. So we want to invite you on that journey to grow with us and following Jesus every day and everywhere with everyone and growing to be a church at work. Now, I fully acknowledge that this is easier said than done. And as we go into the season ahead, we're going to actually start a sermon series on the book of Daniel that helps us understand how is it possible that we can follow Jesus in a world that doesn't? How can we faithfully be a church at work in a world where our coworkers, perhaps our neighbors, perhaps our friends, perhaps our family doesn't believe in the God of the Bible doesn't confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. How do we do this faithfully? Well, stick around towards the end of the service. I want to intro and invite you into a seven-week series that starts next week. But until then, stick around as we continue in worship. May God bless you. Would you love this time knowing that God loves you? Life is full of things that have the potential to incinerate our faith. They can destroy our love, our courage, our humility, our hope. Are these fiery trials meant to be avoided, feared, endured? Do they mean that God is absent? What if there was a way to not fear the fire or fight the fire, but to be faithful in the fire? What if the fires meant that God was actually near and not far? 
As we look back to the days of Daniel, we see people faithful in the fires of another kingdom, faithful in the fires of loss, faithful in the fires of worldly education, faithful in the fires of social conformity, faithful in the fires of discernment, faithful in the fires of success, and faithful in the fires of persecution. Could it be that the days of Daniel aren't too different than today and that God has a vision to meet us in the fires so that we can together be faithful in the fire? Well, because following Jesus is a way of life, it ultimately leads us to the question, how do we follow Jesus in a world that doesn't? And I want to invite you to a sermon series called Faithful in the Fire. It's going to begin next week, and it's a, it's a study on some themes that pop up in the book of Daniel. Now, some of you might have learned about Daniel growing up. Maybe you know about Daniel and the lion's den, but there is one story within that book that is perhaps one of the most memorable and famous of all, and it's a story of three individuals, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, contemporaries of Daniel, who refused to bow down and worship a massive statue of King Nebuchadnezzar. And as a result of that disobedience to the king of Babylon, uh, they are ordered into a death sentence. They're ordered to be thrown into a fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar gives Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego one last chance. In light of the fact that if they don't bow down and worship, they're going to be thrown to their death in this fiery furnace. And there is this famous response where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, we know that our God will save us. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow down and worship your God, your statue. And so in anger, Nebuchadnezzar turns up the furnace seven times hotter than normal, orders them to be thrown in. And in the haste, it says in the book of Daniel, that the, the soldiers who were about to throw them in fell in themselves and immediately died. But Nebuchadnezzar saw something that filled him with amazement and he stood up and he peered into the fire and he saw four individuals now, unbound, walking in the middle of the fire. And that fourth individual looked like the Son of God. What is happening here? Nebuchadnezzar brings them out, sees that the three that emerge from the fire have no sign of fire, not a singe on their body, not a singe on their clothing. It even goes to the great detail that their clothes don't even smell like smoke. And so Nebuchadnezzar, formerly ordering them to bow down and worship a statue of himself, says, this God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, no God can save like this God. What is happening here? Who's this fourth individual? Well, what we're going to do in this fall season is we're going to take a look at this story, this literal furnace that they were thrown into, this reality that all the evidence points to that the fourth individual in the fire is actually a pre-incarnate Jesus. Long before he was born in Bethlehem, this is the Son of God in the flesh entering into the fire to be with them in the fire so that they would be unbound, free, walking, faithful in the fire. I love the fact that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't fear the fire. They didn't try to fight the fire. They didn't try to avoid the fire. They were faithful up to the point and even in the fire. And the remarkable thing is that God saves them not by fighting the fire, not by having them avoid the fire, but God meets them in the fire and saves them in such a way that Nebuchadnezzar begins to have his heart turned towards the one true God. Now, that literal fire actually can be seen as a framework throughout the entirety of the book of Daniel. And when I study the book of Daniel, I see seven other 
metaphorical fires that we are called to be faithful in. And these fires are the same fires that we face today. The reality is that as you go throughout life, it's not gonna be easy. There's gonna be trials, there's gonna be tribulations, there's gonna be fires. And we are called not to fight those fires, we're called not to fear those fires, we're called not to avoid those fires, but we are called to be faithful in the fire. So join us in these seven weeks as we take a look at the fire of another kingdom, the fire of loss, the fire of worldly education, the fire of social conformity, the fire of discernment, the fire of success, and the fire of persecution. These seven realities are things that every single one of us is going to face in our life if we haven't faced it yet. And the key is, is that the book of Daniel provides for us a game plan, a map, a blueprint on how to faithfully follow Jesus in the fires of our life. So join us in the season that begins ahead. Walk with us in this journey and grow in your faith, a faith that can survive any fire in this world. May God bless you as we continue in worship. Well, before we wrap up this hour, I have a very special invitation for you if you live within the Los Angeles area. Next Sunday, we will kick off a brand new sermon series on September 11th. What a significant day it is in our nation's history, but also it's an invitation to come back to Bel Air. If you come next Sunday, September 11th on our physical campus, not only will we kick off that series, but we will share with you all the things that you can get engaged in during this fall season, not only on Sundays and not only throughout the week on our physical campus, but in your neighborhoods as well. If you're not able to make it next Sunday in person, what a great reminder that we gather together on our digital campus. Thousands and thousands of people gather with us every single Sunday, and we want you to do so as well as we kick off this brand new series. But to know you don't have to wait till next Sunday to engage with us. Right after this service, you can go to our website, explore many things of how you can get connected right now. Don't miss beller.org forward slash connected to make yourself known so that we can follow up with you. But also subscribe to our YouTube channels. We start that new series next week and follow us on social media. We want to connect with you because we want to grow in our ability together to follow Jesus every day and everywhere with everyone. May God bless you. May you go in peace. Amen.